Friends, I invite you to pull out your Bibles and turn to um, Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. Uh, different than the, what is listed in the bulletin here. So Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. And you'll find that on page 748 in your pew Bibles, the dark brown pew Bibles or black. <laughs> 748. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and to take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child and the one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The New Testament reading will be... John 20, verses um, 1 through 18, on, uh, on page 1087. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran P- Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at, in at the strips of linen there, but did not go in. Then P- Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen laying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other, uh, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They, did, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back for where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb, crying, 
And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw the two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and sisters and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God, your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with this news. I have seen the Lord, she told them, that he told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Good job, Sophia. Good morning. He is risen. Um, It is such a joy. Uh, to worship with you this Easter morning um, and to rejoice in the good news of the resurrection. Um, I will admit, though, that this week it was tough to just focus on the good news. Um, Bad news is everywhere and struck home um, particularly this week. Um, I'm sure many of you have seen uh, the video of Patrick Luoya's death here in Grand Rapids. Um, And we grieve with his family and for all who knew him. And we grieve too um, what that death means about our city and about the systems that we live in and participate in and the devastating impact that they have on people of color. I think, too, um, we should also grieve our complicity in his death. Uh, People, even, even actually people in this congregation, have been warning about this for years. They have been saying, Grand Rapids is ripe to be another Ferguson. And now it is. They have been saying that all the warning signs are there. And despite the warnings, you know, there has been some change, but it has been very little. And it has come much too slowly for Mr. Leoya and his family. If nothing else, um, we have allowed this devastating status quo. His blood is on our hands, too, I think. And that grief, along with so many others, some that Jamie named in his prayer, some that we've been reading about in the news, that grief is why I'm so glad that our text this morning begins in the dark. 
Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Of course, it wasn't just the darkness of the early morning. It was the darkness, too, of hopelessness and the darkness of confusion, the darkness of despair. The disciples were hidden away. Some had gone home fearful. The death of Jesus was the death of their hope, everything that they had set their lives on. And Mary, she wasn't at the tomb because she was looking for a resurrection. She was there to grieve all that had been lost. I think that's why when she saw that the stone had been rolled away, she didn't even look inside. She just assumed that the grave had been robbed. Apparently, grave robberies were a common thing back then. Still, and still in the dark, Mary runs to the other disciples and tells them not that there's been a miracle, but a theft. John and Peter, the beloved disciple and the disciple who denied Jesus three times, both of them betrayers in the end, They ran to see. They looked for a body and they saw none, so they went home again. They believed Mary's report of a theft. What could they do? So they went home. I want to remind you that at this moment, as these disciples sink even deeper into their despair, the resurrection has already happened. Because the resurrection happened in the dark. This moment is the pinnacle of our faith, right? That's why there's so many of you here this morning. This is the very height of the Christian year. It's the culmination of everything that we believe and nobody even noticed when it happened. And we believe that our world, created good and fallen, has been pursued relentlessly by God. To the point that God, who is spirit, would deign to take on flesh in the form of a helpless child. How could the God of all decide to do such a thing? Like what gentleness and humility that would take. What kindness. And then we're given the chance to learn from Jesus as he heals the sick and washes feet and feeds the poor and calls out those who neglect justice. And then again, in another incredible show of humility and generosity, God gives God's own self to our violence. Jesus let himself be killed at the hands of the state, at the word of the religious authorities, and to the shouts of the crowd. The God of all subjects himself to shame and ridicule, to betrayal, to pain, and to murder. And the blood on the hands of our world becomes not just the blood of our brothers and sisters, but also the blood of God. But even then, God will not be done with us. God will not leave us to destroy ourselves. 
but lets that very moment that seems like total defeat when all of our sin is most clearly on display in the murder of God. God lets that very moment be the moment when God sets us free. Even when we have done our best to murder love, even then, love never fails. And so today we celebrate the resurrection. That the power of sin is limited. That there's, there's only so much it can do to destroy us and it's not enough. We celebrate that even death has died. You know, Easter means that there are no dead ends. Nothing, nothing, nothing can stop the healing of this world. Because love never fails. Sin and death have died with Jesus, and Jesus has come alive again, and we with him. Hallelujah. This is the height of our faith as Christians. And it all happened in the dark. Nobody even noticed. Like, we don't get a story of the moment of the resurrection. And even when the disciples started to kind of see the pieces coming together, they still couldn't quite get it. It all happened in the dark with confusion and anger and grief and the mysterious hidden power of God. After present to the grief and confusion, she doesn't pretend it away, she doesn't avoid it, she returns to the very place of it. Like, I bet she didn't even know what she was looking for. She just stays. And in that, she becomes the first witness to the living Christ. But she doesn't realize it at first, because it's dark. But when, it, when Jesus appears there at the tomb, he asks Mary this question that we have been pondering this week, who is it you are looking for? Now, I think the answer this week is quite simple. I think she was looking for Jesus. I don't think she expected a resurrection. No one did. She didn't even know to hope for it. She went to the tomb looking for a dead Jesus. A memory, maybe. A place to cry. So when a living Jesus appeared next to her, she didn't see him. She thought he was the gardener. And there are a lot of people in scripture who couldn't see Jesus for a lot of different reasons. Um, Jesus doesn't usually give them a hard time about that. I think he expects to be misunderstood. Jesus is love in the flesh. How can love himself be known by a people who barely know what it is to love? Like we're so wounded, so good at protecting ourselves, so good at gripping control but not so good at being vulnerable. Not so good at setting one another free. Not so good at the surrender that is required by love. 
so Peter tells Jesus not to wash his feet and that he can never die. Even after three years with Jesus, Peter draws his sword and hacks at the guard who is arresting Jesus, and Jesus has to heal the man and say, Peter, like, what do you think we're doing here? Even after so long, Peter couldn't quite grasp the love of God in his midst. And the Pharisees don't see Jesus because they're looking for control, not for love. They want clear rules to follow and enforce, boundaries that they could count on, clarity. And Jesus' family doesn't see him because they're looking for some sense of normal, some decency. Martha doesn't see him because she's looking for fairness. You know, even those that Jesus heals, they often just see the healing, not the healer. Who is it that you are looking for? I know a lot of you um, are going through something of a deconstruction. Um, You're struggling to know who God is in light of some of the, maybe some of the messed up things you learned as a kid in church. Maybe some of the things in your faith life that used to feel meaningful, but now they feel hollow. Maybe in light of the revelations of abuse by far too many church leaders. Or maybe the, in, because of the way that the American church seems so often to be more angry and hateful than loving, so much more defensive than humble. And you realize that your faith has to change or to die. And maybe you're not quite sure which one it is yet. And all of that is acutely painful, deeply confusing, like the darkness of the tomb. I mean, that's my story. Uh, Just last night, Tony and I were listening to this worship playlist uh, which is not a thing that I do very often. Uh, and some of the songs like, reminded me so much of these big youth conferences that I used to go to. It brings up all these like, mixed feelings, like memories of sensing the presence of God so palpably. And also this just disgust at the manipulation that's also present in it. And like, what do you do with those? How do you hold those together? I became Christian, Christian at 16, and I thought then that there was like a right answer to everything. If I just like learned how to dissect the Bible the right way, took enough sermon notes. But then in college, um, I have a business degree, but eager Christian that I was, I took like every religious studies elective I could, which took me into avenues that I didn't even know existed. Uh, <laughs> so in college, I took a science and religion class, Uh, and I spent all three months of the semester crying uh, because it just undid a lot of things I thought I knew. And that kind of change is just so painful and so unsettling. Then I took a religious activism class, and I spent two of those three months arguing with my professor because he was trying to tell me that God had a special eye out for the poor and the marginalized. And I was not having it. (laughs) Two months in, I apologized. (laughs) Do you know, I'm sorry, this is an aside, but I used to take... (sighs) 
my friend and I noticed that whenever we brought coffee into school, he would mention fair trade, or into class, he would mention fair trade coffee. And so we would bring in coffee in order to irritate him. And we knew you could buy fair trade across the hallway from the place where we would buy it, but we wouldn't do it. That was me. Uh, <laughs> anyway, two months in, I apologized. And I told him he was right, and my life completely changed. My relationship with God completely changed. I don't know how I couldn't see in the Bible what I see now. And then in another class, I learned that the Bible was a completely different thing than I had known it to be, and that was a whole other mess. And then in seminary, they taught me how big the gospel is, how it encompasses all of everything. And, and this time, I just marveled at it, and I was so angry at the church of my youth for not telling me. Like, I used to think that faith gave me a firm foundation because it gave me convictions I could stand on. And that's not quite right. There are convictions. They are certainly not the foundation. I've learned through all these upheavals to hold them a little more humbly, to let the mystery lead, and to find my firm footing only and always on the goodness and love of God. And that will remain firm even if my convictions don't. In our story, Mary turns when Jesus speaks to her. And she turns again when he calls her name. And that is the life of a faithful Christian. A life of constant turning at the voice of Jesus. Even and especially when it is dark. There's this Quaker song with the lines, um, To turn, turn will be our delight till by turning, turning, we come round right. I think I probably needed what those youth conferences gave me, what the church of my youth gave me. And then I needed to turn and to turn, and I expect that I will continue to turn. And God has used every step of it. And every approximation has brought me nearer to being face-to-face -face with Jesus. St. Anselm describes the Christian life as faith-seeking understanding, never arriving, just seeking. You know, we think we know Jesus, and then God brings us something new, and then we have to change. Because, like St. Ignatius says, God is always greater than our conception of him. Right in our text, Mary is given a sign that her faith in Jesus, her love, is about to change yet again. Do not hold on to me, Jesus says, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. She had looked for a dead man and she found the living God. Then she clung to the living Jesus in the flesh, only to learn that that wouldn't work either. She had to let go of what she knew to receive what would come. The revelation of God in human form had to end so that the Spirit could come, bringing Jesus nearer to her still. 
another change, another adjustment, new learning, and new life again. Our Easter celebrations um, pronounce this kind of certainty, right? He is risen, we say, with such conviction. Sometimes it's comforting to know that the actual resurrection happened in the dark. And the light didn't dawn for the disciples until after the gift had already been given. I want you to know this morning, if your faith feels tenuous or confused, you have got good company. Mary, standing by the tomb, in love with Jesus and grieving. Peter's rushing into the tomb and back out again and going home, still in the shame of his own betrayal, still not seeing. John, standing at the door of the tomb and peeking in, squinting in the darkness, and then heading home himself, beloved and unsure. Thomas, with questions for which he demands answers. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus who didn't understand even as their hearts burned within them. And all of this after the gift had already been given. And each of them, in time, given answers, comforted, welcomed back, even sent out. God is always greater than our conception of him. And God's love never fails. Our God gives grace on top of grace already given. And each new grace requires some adjustment, some change, some rearranging of the ways that we thought things were. God, it seems, is just constantly giving, constantly bringing us around to wholeness, to holiness, nurturing new life even in the bleakest of circumstances. If things are dark for you this Easter, for whatever reason. Perhaps keep your heart open to the surprising ways that God might show up. Be watchful. And keep your eye out for the gardener. You know, Mary made that mistake of thinking that Jesus was the gardener. But John gives us hints through his writing that he actually thinks she's quite right. This kind of play is what makes John's telling of the resurrection so beautiful. Even the darkness of the scene at the tomb kind of shimmers with light. Let me show you how to see that. Um, In the beginning of John's gospel, John reminded us of the creation story. In the beginning was the word, he said. And those words call us back to the in the beginning of Genesis, when all things were made. And of course, God made a garden where people lived with God in shalom, at peace with God, with each other, with themselves, with the rest of creation. Jesus was there, John says, in the beginning. Every bit of it all was made through him. And then later, John tells us that Jesus' arrest happened in a garden. 
And the crucifixion happens right by a garden, the garden where Jesus is buried. It's gardens, gardens. And then in verse 1 of our passage, early on the first day of the week while it was still dark, if you've got Genesis in your mind at all, you should think, huh, the first day of creation was the first day of the week. And it happened in darkness and chaos, confusion. Could this even here, this moment at a tomb, in the dark, could this be the new creation beginning? Jesus has always been the one who has tended and shaped and nourished new life from the beginning of time until now. Jesus is also the one who cuts back and pulls up and clears the space at times, all for the sake of that same flourishing. Always in love and care, urging life forward into something new. It was true in Genesis when the world was created, and it is true at the tomb as the world is recreated. Behold, Jesus says in Revelation, I am making all things new. And do we not long for something new? Something we've never seen before. Something we couldn't even know to imagine. As new and surprising as bare soil bursting with flowers. Whatever happens, whatever comes, whatever darkness you find yourselves in. Keep an eye out for the gardener, who in the bleakest moments is still there, rising before the sun, nurturing new life, whatever the cost, whatever it requires. The soil may look bare, but the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed planted deep, and our Lord is determined to tend it. The Lord will bear it up on his own crucified and resurrected body, like any good gardener. Our Lord is determined to bring new life. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Please pray with me. Lord, we, um, as we walk through springtime, as we watch your world blossom and come to life again, may we keep our eyes open for where you work. May we find ourselves strengthened by the Holy Spirit to join you in your gardening bringing new life. Lord, may we put our hope and our faith 
in your determination to save us. In Jesus' name, amen.